Does it get any cuter than that? All right, 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 17. Normally, this time of year, I am leaning into some series of messages specifically about Christmas. And as you are turning in your Bibles, you've probably figured out I'm not doing that this year. And uh, I'd planned to, was working that way, preparing that way, but uh, the Lord just never really moved me to something that I was clear and and sure was what we were supposed to focus on. And so I I just said, well, we're just going to keep going through 1 Peter. That's what we've been working through. And we're just going to keep going that way. And that's one of the advantages, by the way, to uh, teaching through books of the Bible um, you, you don't get to pick what comes next. What comes next is what you work on. And so a lot of times what happens when I do this, I've seen it over and over again, the Lord just works it out to where it's perfectly timed and synced up with something we need to hear. And what we're going to be talking about in the next couple of weeks in First Peter is the idea and the theme of suffering and difficulty and pain and hardship and how we as the people of God, as aliens and pilgrims, as Peter calls us, can live in the midst of difficulty and suffering in a vibrant, joyous way. Now, why do I think that the Lord has timed it so that we would go through this in Christmas? I'll tell you why. I think it's because for many people, Christmas is a hard time of year. For many people, uh, Christmas is a a, uh, heavy time of year. It can be the fact that, that there's a spot at your Christmas table this year where somebody sat there last year and they're not here this year. They've passed away over the last year. Christmas is a time when we slow down and we kind of reflect on our lives and we do inventory and we think about where we are. And sometimes there's regret that seeps into our lives. There's remorse for things. There's pain that comes out. Some of you are lonely. And Christmas is not as an exciting time as our culture would have you think it is, or music, or songs, or the kind of spirit of the day is not what you would experience in your life. And so I believe God's Word in First Peter has something for us these next two weeks as we work through the idea of suffering and how you and I can live in the midst of difficulty and to live in the midst of loneliness or remorse or pain or sorrow, and we can do that well. I want to show you that from God's Word over the next two weeks. We're going to start in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 17. If you're open there in your Bible or your device, would you please stand to your feet as we honor the reading of God's Word? 1 Peter chapter 3, I've entitled this message, Righteous Suffering. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 17. We read these words. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits now in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. 
For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. This is the word of the Lord. This is God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word to us. Would you pray with me, please? Father, every week we come together as a family with your word open in our laps and our hearts open to what you have to say to us. God, would you please open our minds to understand what you want to say to us through your word this morning. God, would you please remove distractions that would keep us from hearing from you today. And God, as we hear from you today and you illumine our minds, would you help us not just be hearers of your word, would you help us in these moments be doers of your word as well? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Martin Luther, in his commentaries and writings on this passage, said, I have read this passage many times, and I still have no idea what the apostle means. Uh, And so where Martin Luther would make such a declaration, we should tread with humility And uh, thanks for God's help as we work through this passage. This is a challenging passage of Scripture to read. It's a challenging passage to understand. But I think by God's grace this morning, we'll be able to work through it. It starts with a declaration of truth. Verse 17. It starts with a declaration of truth. And here's the truth. It is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Said another way, righteous suffering is good because it is a part of God's plan for our lives. Now, it's important to note that what Peter's talking about here is not just any type of suffering. Here specifically, he's talking about suffering for doing good, what I'm calling righteous suffering. It's the kind of suffering that comes into your life when you're being obedient, you're being faithful to God, and you suffer for it. Maybe it's something you're asked to do at work that you know you can't do, that you can't compromise on. And, and because you can't compromise your faith in what you believe, you, you don't get a promotion or you maybe even lose your job. This is the kind of suffering Peter's talking about when in being faithful and doing the right thing and obeying God and his word, we will suffer. He says this is good. And, and part of the reason he says it's good is because there are times when doing this, God will have as a part of his plan for you and I to endure suffering. Part of God's plan is that many times when we are faithful and obedient to his word, we will suffer. So one of the questions that immediately emerges when you make that statement and you take that declaration at face value is you want to follow up and say, what does that tell us about God? What is Peter saying that there are times when it's God's will for us to suffer? Well, remember, what we know about the, from the Bible about God is that God is indeed sovereign. He's over all things. He's in control of all things. But we also know that God is perfectly holy. He's perfect and sinless in every kind of way. And so when you put God's sovereignty and his control and his holiness and his perfection together, what you get is that while God is in control of every single thing that happens, God's relationship to evil is different than his relationship to good. God is in control of everything, but the way he relates to evil and good is different. If you want to read a really good book on this idea, you can read God's Greater Glory by a guy named Bruce Ware. God's Greater Glory by Bruce Ware. And here's what Ware says that has helped me think through this idea of God and sovereignty and evil. He says that God's relationship to evil is asymmetrical. His relationship to evil is asymmetrical than it is to good. It's, it's not the same. He doesn't relate to them in the same way. Think about the story of Job. Job was a servant of God's in the Old Testament. Um, God looked at Job as an exemplary person in a conversation that God has with the the enemy, with the devil. And Job, uh, the devil has to ask permission to harm Job. God is still in control. The agency through which evil comes comes from a different place. Yet God is still over all things. So what's important for you and I to acknowledge is that nothing that happens in our lives is accidental or haphazard. 
yet God is still good. God is over all things. He's in control. He's sovereign. Yet part of that plan will include difficulty, pain, and hardship. The mistake that you can make is to assume that somehow pain or suffering that comes into your life is not what God wanted, that he's somehow somehow out of control in that part of your life. And what we want to affirm from this passage and so many others is no, actually God is in control of everything, even the evil and the suffering and the pain that he allows to come into our lives. So here's the question I want to talk about for the rest of our time together. I want to talk about why this is good, And here's the statement. If you're wanting a statement, just to to sum up what I've just said, righteous suffering is for our good and for God's glory. Okay, there it is, just in a statement. Righteous suffering is for our good and for God's glory. I want to talk about why that's the case this morning with you. I'm going to give you three reasons why that's true. And then I want to come back and talk about how we as a people can live in the midst of suffering. It's one thing to know information that tells me, okay, I know I'm suffering, but I know God has a plan for me. It's another thing to know how to live it. So what I'm going to do is this this morning. I'm going to talk about why, three reasons why it's good, and then I'm going to come back and talk about how, and I'm going to have three corresponding points of application that show us how to live this in our lives. So first question, why is this good for us? Number one, Through Christ's example, you and I see God's design for suffering. Through Christ's example, we see God's design for suffering. Look at verse 18 in your Bibles. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Over and over again, Peter has called forth Christ as the example that you and I are to look to and follow. If you're taking notes, write down 1 Peter chapter 2, 21 through 25. That's where Peter went so far as to say that Christ intentionally left us an example we should follow. And he's here again calling for us Christ as an example to explain to us why it's good that we suffer in the midst of being faithful and obedient. Here's the point that Peter's making. God has ordered the world. That the example we see in Christ is this. The design that God has put in place is that suffering produces a blessing. Especially righteous suffering. Righteous suffering, when we're faithful and obedient and we suffer anyway, that kind of suffering produces a blessing in our lives. For most of us, when I say the word suffering and blessing, we usually don't connect those two ideas. For most of us, suffering and blessing are seen as two kind of separate ideas. But what Peter wants us to see is that suffering and blessing are not disconnected. Actually, suffering is the doorway to blessing. It's the path to blessing often in our lives. Think about the life of Joseph in the Old Testament. I don't know if you remember the story of Joseph. Joseph was one of 12 brothers. Um, Through some observations and dreams that Joseph shared with his brothers. His brothers become angry at him. His 11 brothers sell him into slavery. Uh, He goes from bad to worse. He's in slavery. He's doing well for a while. He is obedient to the word, the command that God's given him. He doesn't sleep with his master's wife, and he's thrown into prison. Years go by in prison, and only after a season of time is Joseph elevated from the lowest point in Egypt to second in command. And from that vantage point, at one key moment in Joseph's life, he looks back on the course of his life and says, the very things others meant to hurt me, the very thing others meant for evil, God meant for good. I think it would have been very different maybe if you had asked Joseph in prison or when he's in slavery how he understood those things. But when he looked on the course of his life, he he didn't see suffering somehow opposite of blessing or or disconnected to it, he realized the suffering in his life was actually the path God had for him to get to blessing and experiencing God's grace in a special way. Here's the point I want you to see. Every instance of suffering for a believer is an opportunity to experience God's grace. 
every single moment of suffering is a chance for you and I to go, God, I don't understand this, but I know that you're working. I said this in the first service. Um, I, I think a lot of times we miss the opportunity to take advantage of suffering. John Piper's written a very helpful book I would commend to all of you called Don't Waste Your Cancer. Don't Waste Your Cancer. And in the book, Piper basically says, cancer, and you could expand this to other types of suffering, is not something just to endure and to live through. It's actually an opportunity to experience the grace of God. Because I know, here's what I want you to remember, church, I know that God's in control. Would I have chosen this path for my life? No, but I know that in the midst of it, God's gonna be faithful to me. And I get to experience his grace and his mercy in my life, even in the midst of difficulty and hardship. Every instance of suffering for the life of a Christian is an opportunity to experience God's grace in a new way. Number two, why is suffering good? Why is it for our good and for God's glory? We see, secondly, through Christ's death and resurrection, we are given new life. It's through suffering in the life of Jesus Christ that he brings us victory and blessing. Look in your Bibles at verse 18. One of the most beautiful phrases in the Bible. For Christ also suffered once for sins. Notice this phrase, church. The righteous for the unrighteous. Jesus Christ is described here as righteous, perfect, without flaw in any shape, form, or fashion. And it says that this righteous, perfect, without flaw person offers his life, he suffers for the unrighteous. Now, one of the questions you've got to get down quickly when you read this is, why does the Bible call you and me unrighteous? I mean, where, where does God get off calling all of humanity unrighteous? Because essentially what he's saying is that we're not good people. You see, one of the reasons there's a malfunction when we hear those words as Americans is because we assume cultural standards for good. Culturally speaking, humans see good as good actions, good things that you can do. To be clear, the Bible's not saying that you can't do good things according to a human standard. You can go to soup kitchens, you can go to homeless shelters, you can help little ladies across the street. But what the Bible is saying is that you can't do anything truly good according to God's standard. The, the Bible's not saying that you can't do outwardly apparent good things. It's just saying we can't do anything good according to God's standards because God's standard is that my heart has to be consistently motivated by his glory and his praise for every single thing that I do. So while human culture says it's a good thing for you to go to the soup kitchen, it's a good thing for you to go to the homeless shelter, it's a good thing for you to help that little old lady cross the street. What God says is while those may appear to be good, they're not truly good unless your heart is motivated by praise and honor and worship of our creator. So here's the diagnostic question for us as we consider this, this designation of unrighteous. Is there a person in the world past, present, or future, who could ever say that they've always done things with a pure motive to worship and praise our Creator? Audience participation time? No. There's not. There's not a person, past, present, or future, except Jesus Christ. He's it. And so if you're, if you're struggling with the idea of not being good, if you're struggling with the idea of being unrighteous, you've got to detach yourself from a human culture kind of perspective on what is good, and you've got to replace that with a biblical God-honoring view of what is good. And God looks beyond our actions. He looks right to our hearts, and he says, you've got a problem. And the problem with our issue in our hearts, because we don't worship him, we don't praise him, God says we're worthy of a sentence of death, and that's what makes this phrase so beautiful, the righteous for the unrighteous. Because while you and I deserved a sentence of death over our heads, this says that Jesus suffered in our place. This says that the innocent suffered for the guilty. Notice in your Bibles, look back at verse 18, 
the result that he might bring us to God. Jesus Christ suffered for me and for you so that he could bring us, as, bring us into God's presence as his child. And we get some confusing verses that follow this, okay? And I want to meet these head on because after he tells us that he has died for us, he makes these statements. Peter makes these statements. Look in your Bibles. It says, He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, what in the world does all that mean? Let's start with Noah, okay? Let's start with Noah. Noah was one of the patriarchs from the Old Testament. Noah was described as a righteous man. God set Noah apart. Uh, The world had become so corrupt in the time in which Noah lived that God says, I'm going to destroy the world. I'm going to destroy the earth. But I'm going to save a remnant, that is Noah and his family, eight total people, and two of every kind of animal on the earth at the time. I'm going to preserve them in this ark from the destruction and the wrath around them. Please understand... Noah and the story of Noah is not a happy story about some boat and some animals. It's a horrible story. It's a story of death and destruction. And while Hollywood's recent portrayal of that movie was like somebody was on drugs when they made it, uh, I don't know if you've seen the movie Noah, there's some weird stuff about rock giants and stuff going on. But what they got right is that the destruction of the world was what happened. That's what that movie got right. And what the point that that Peter's making to us is in the same way that Noah and his family were protected in this ark from the destruction around us, Jesus Christ is like this ark. He's like the ark that brings us into safety and protection around the destruction around us. So in the same way that Noah and his family were protected, when you and I place our faith and trust in Jesus and repent of our sins, when that happens, we enter into the protection that is Christ, though all around us may be destroyed. And what he wants us to see is that same kind of protection is what Christ offers us. Now, he talks about baptism. What he's trying to tell us about baptism is that while it corresponds to this, it's a picture of someone declaring that they've been forgiven. It's a picture of somebody saying, I have been forgiven for my past, present, and future sins. Now, Peter here says that baptism corresponds to this. It saves us. He's clear that this salvation that baptism portrays is not the removal of dirt. In other words, there's nothing magical about this water behind me in these baptismal this baptismal area. It doesn't wash away any dirt off of me. What it does do is it professes faith that I have in Jesus to the world. So what these verses are saying is in the same way that Christ protected Noah and his family, God protects us from the wrath and destruction that he calls us, that's going on around us, and that this baptism he calls us to following that is a profession of the faith that we have in him. Let me try to sum this up in just one statement. Why is this so special? Why is suffering so helpful? When we think about grace, suffering has a way of reminding me of how beautiful grace really is. The reason suffering is good when we think about the salvation that God's given us is that it has a way of reminding me that grace is truly amazing. You know, we sing the song Amazing Grace. We sing about Uh, the merit that Christ has to forgive us, but it's very easy to become detached from how incredible grace is. One of my prayers every single week when I prepare to talk to you as a church is, God, would you help me just, just in some small way show how beautiful your grace is? Would you, would you help me portray the, dis, the splendor of what God's grace does in our lives? Can I tell you what the reality is, though? While words are important, while speaking and teaching God's word is important, it is many times on the canvas of suffering and pain that we experience the grace of God the most, and we see how beautiful it really is. Because oftentimes in suffering, what happens is something very important to us, something very valuable to us is taken away. 
And can I tell you what's happened in the times of my life where I've had suffering like that? Is when that thing is taken away, it hurts. It's painful. It, it, it goes deep into who I am. But what emerges after that pain is gone, that initial pain and that shock, is I get to looking and I realize I've still got God's grace. And though I've lost this job or I've lost this person or this thing didn't work out the way I wanted it to or that conversation didn't go the way I thought it would or man, I, I hope that situation would turn out differently. I, the grace that God has given me shines all the brighter because it never changes People may change, relationships change, difficulties come and go, but the grace of God never changes. Suffering has a way of reminding me of how beautiful grace really is. Number three, and finally, when we talk about why, why is the the suffering that we go through a good thing according to God? We see in this passage that through Christ's ascension, we've been given real assurance. Through Christ's ascension, we've been given real assurance. Look at the end of verse 18 says that Jesus was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. What that means is Jesus suffered physically, died on the cross in our place. But when he rose again from the grave, he entered into a new state of existence. In this new state of existence, he still had a physical body, but his physical body had changed. He had this glorified, perfected body. Skip down to verse 22. It says, this glorified, perfected Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Here's what's cool about Jesus. Jesus lives a perfect life. He dies. He comes back to life. And then he ascends back into heaven. And the Bible tells us that when Jesus ascends back into heaven, he sits down at the right hand of the Father. This position of power and authority. He sits down because his work is finished. And what he does from that point is there's a communication that goes out to the entire realm, spiritually speaking, that Jesus Christ has overcome. Spiritual forces, demonic forces, past, present, future, angels, principalities, authorities, all of them have been served notice that Jesus has overcome. This is what this verse means in verse 19 when it says that in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits now in prison, they were formerly in the days of Noah. This is talking about the fact that even spiritual forces that were at work all the way back in Noah's time, they have been served notice that Jesus has overcome from the grave. They have been served warning that Jesus is victorious. Let me tell you why that's so important. Because Christ Jesus is victorious, because he's overcome the grave, you and I share in his victory as his children. Because Jesus Christ is victorious, because he has overcome the grave, we stand in victory with him. In 2011, um, my Dallas Mavericks won the NBA title. They were NBA champions. It was a great time. Many of you know, Shelly and I moved, our family moved here from Dallas-Fort Worth three or four years ago, and so we used to follow that team very closely. And that year was really cool from an, uh, a sports perspective because we beat not just any team, we beat the dreaded Miami Heat. It was fantastic. team that had beat us a couple years previous. Well, in the offseason leading up to that season, we had drafted and, and not drafted, but traded for a player named Karam Butler. Karam Butler was this really athletic wing guard. He was very defensively minded, really good athletic shooter. He was going to bring a lot of depth to our team. And, and very quickly into the season, he got hurt and he wasn't able to play. And so this piece that we thought for our team was going to be really important ends up sitting in a suit on the sideline the entire season. Well, fast forward, you know, they win the championship, they're excited, they're jumping up and down, they come to that pivotal moment where they're given the trophy, and each of them get championship rings. And in that moment, when the team is given their ring, every single player, even Karam Butler, is given a ring. He didn't play hardly any minutes through the entire season, yet he's treated as a champion because he's part of the team. What you and I need to remember in our lives is we contribute nothing to the salvation Jesus offers us. We have nothing to add to it. It's his work on the cross for us that saves us. Yet, because by faith we're put into his family, we share in his victory. Now, here's why this is so important, okay? The reason this is important for you and for me is suffering, though it may be intense, though it may be difficult, suffering can never touch 
or take Christ away from us. Suffering, as a rule, can never unhinge me from Christ. We do not believe that you can lose your salvation. And the reason we believe you can't lose your salvation is because salvation is not primarily me reaching up to God and asking for help. Salvation is first God reaching down to us and pursuing us. Salvation is God holding on to me as in faith I hold on to him. And he never lets go. Why do we say that we believe that suffering, though it may be intense, can never take Christ away from us? Because God loves us so much that he pursues us. This is really important because what we're saying about suffering is that even though we may lose everything we have in this life, we can never lose Christ. So why is suffering good? Why is righteous suffering called good in this passage? Because of these three reasons. It shows us God's design. It shows us the new life we have in him and reminds us that we can never lose what we have in Christ. Now, let me come back and let me talk about how. How do we live, if these three things are true, how do we live in such a way that we live these things out? I'm going to show you three kind of corresponding ways that we can live this out in our day-to-day lives. Number one, number one, we've got to shift our thinking about suffering. If we're going to suffer well, if we're going to suffer in a way that honors King Jesus, we have to shift our thinking about suffering. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. It says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. That word arm yourself means to literally suit up for battle, prepare for war. One of my favorite movies and movies in our house is Lord of the Rings. Any Lord of the Rings fans out there? Okay, we got a few. Great. Uh, Lord of the Rings, you know, is a story about this hobbit Frodo who's charged with taking this, this evil ring of power and destroying it. Uh, before Frodo and his companions go on this trek to try to destroy this ring, he's given some protections. And one of the protections he's given is this armor called Mithril. And it's this, if you watch the movie and read the books, it's this, this thin kind of uh, vest-looking thing that he has that protects his vital organs. And if you read through the books and you watch the movies, you see over and over again that this armor Frodo has protects him in some of the most difficult situations. Whether it's a spear somebody attacks him with or a sword, it always kind of keeps him safe. When I was reading this this past week, that's what came to my mind. It's as if God is saying, we've got to put Mithra, we've got to put an armor around our minds if we're going to effectively walk through suffering. If we're going to walk through suffering in a way that honors Christ, the place we've got to start is guarding our thinking. And here's what I think this looks like. We've got to start to train our minds to default to a biblical view of suffering rather than a human view of suffering. We've got to train our minds to default, to make its kind of original setting that we naturally drift to, not a human view of suffering, but a biblical view of suffering. A human view of suffering says, why is this happening to me? I should never have any problems. My life should always be easy. A biblical view of suffering says, actually, suffering is God's path for me to experience his blessing and grace. I said that we should default there because I'm pretty convinced that all of us naturally have a set of thought patterns or attitudes that we default to when we face problems. You guys know what I'm talking about? Some of us, what we default to is we worry ourselves to death. Have we got any worriers in here that would admit it? Okay, a few of you, good. I know who you are now. Uh, I I can fall into that category, right? Uh, You start to get anxious about it. You worry about it. Uh, Some people eat, right, when they have problems. Anybody eat to soothe themselves? Okay, we got one person that'll admit it, a few people. They get food. Uh, Other people just try to disconnect from everything. They're just going to go into a corner and suck their thumb. Any thumb suckers in here? Okay, Uh, different approaches to dealing with it, but all of those things are in some ways the way we default and deal with problems. <clears throat> what I believe the key that Peter's talking about here for us and as it regards to suffering is recognizing what I've got to default to is to think of them rightly, to not view them as just something I have to endure, but to view them as opportunities to experience God's grace. 
Uh, Devin Johnson was in the first service. Many of you know Devin. Devin coaches football here in the area, and he's in our life group. And one of the things I enjoy listening to is his routine. I love routine. I love schedules. I love lists. I love marking things off my list. I, I love that stuff. And so he, he describes this really regimented routine he has with his players. And, and what he's trying to do with those football players is he's trying to train them to get them so ingrained in a certain pattern of behaviors so that when they get in the game, those patterns of behavior just naturally happen. When adversity comes, when difficulty comes, you hope that the training and the practice schedule that they have prepare them to still run the plays and do the things that they've been trained to do. What I'm saying for you and for me is we've got to train our minds like that. We have to start catching ourselves thinking the sky is falling when we face difficulty. You know you're, as a pastor, you're, you're preaching on suffering when you walk out the door this morning, and your wife opens a medical bill from your child's recent hospital visit, right? I, I hear Shelly open it, I hear her gasp, and I look back and I go, I don't know if I really want to know this, but you just gasped. How much was it? You know, how, how much is it? Um, you would think that we don't have insurance with how much these things cost, but uh, you know, we have, may have to take a second mortgage out in the house to start paying for some of these things. And it's easy when you get those things in the mail or those things come to think, woe is me, the sky is falling. But instead, what we've got to do is we've got to catch ourselves. And what I had to do driving is go, man, I'm preaching this message this morning. This is the very thing I'm talking about. I've got to let myself remember, Lord, this is an opportunity for me to experience your faithfulness and grace. Lord, I'm not going to let my thinking go three hours down the road of me wringing my hands about this before I stop myself and go, no, I'm going to revert to a biblical pattern of thinking about suffering, not a human one. Our thought lives are one of the key battlegrounds for suffering and suffering rightly. Let me make this statement. One of the keys to this whole thing is training your thinking before suffering comes into your life. Here's what I found in my life. If I don't catch my way of thinking about suffering, like with this medical bill, for example, quickly, it becomes very difficult for me to pull out of that. Trying to retrain my thinking in the midst of suffering oftentimes is trying to like reinforce the foundation of my house during a hurricane. Right? Can you picture that in your mind's eye? The winds are blowing, the rain's falling. Here goes a car blowing by your house and you're walking out with your hammer and your nails. Not the best time to be doing that, right? But many times that's what we do. We get in the middle of something and we're three months into it and we've been yelling at each other in the house and we've been angry and we've been doing this and we've been doing that. All of a sudden we're gonna go, okay, I'm gonna start honoring, glorifying God in this situation. I'm not saying it can't happen, but it's oftentimes very difficult and challenging. The key to what Peter's saying is to be proactive about my thought life on the front end. So let me ask you this question this morning. How are you viewing suffering today? How are you viewing suffering? How are you looking at suffering in your lives? I know some of you as your pastor that you're dealing with difficult circumstances. In your thought life, how are you viewing those things? Are you seeing them as things that you've just got to get through and grind your teeth and just get to the other side of? Or are you recognizing that oftentimes the plan for God is for you and I to walk through those things to experience his blessing and grace on the other side? Do you believe that God has a plan for suffering in your life this morning? I didn't ask you if you liked it. That's a different question. See, I don't like everything that I believe. You ever thought about that? I don't like everything that I believe. If I only believe things that I like, my belief system would look a lot different. One of the ways you can know that you're committed to truth is you end up believing things that you don't necessarily enjoy or like. Can I give you an example? I don't like the idea of hell. I don't. I don't like the idea that there are people that reject Christ and face his wrath. I don't like that. 
I don't enjoy thinking about that for a moment, but I believe it. I believe it's true. And one of the things I used to do with college students all the time is if your belief system is just a series of what you like and what you don't like, I don't know that that's a really good idea because what you're doing is you're making yourself the arbiter of right and wrong. And as I've showed you so many times, if I hold up a piece of paper and I draw a square on it and I say, this is all the knowledge in the world, color in for me how much you know. Most people, if they're honest and humble, will put a dot. Every once in a while, you run into some sophomore in college that colors in half of it or something, you know, whatever, trying to mess with my illustration. But most of us would say, we don't know that much, really, really. We end up believing things we don't like. I didn't ask you if you like the fact that God works and and can bless you through suffering, but do you believe that? Number two, second thing we've got to do if we're going to live well through suffering, is we have to trust in such a way that we treasure Christ. Look at the rest of verse 1 through verse 3. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Peter makes a strong and somewhat confusing statement in verse 1 because he says, if we know Christ, if we've shared in his suffering and that we've died to ourselves and been risen again through his death and resurrection in our lives, if we've done that by faith, we've ceased from sin. I don't know how many Christians we have in the room, but if I polled most of you and asked you, have you sinned today? Many of you would have to raise your hand and say, yes, I have. So what is he talking about here? What he's talking about is that we've entered into a new state of existence as Christians, a new state of existence in which sin no longer is the master in our lives. Christ is. If we know Christ, we've entered into a new state of existence in which we no longer live for our passions, our desires. We begin to live for God. That doesn't mean that we're perfect. It does mean that we're progressing, There's a progression to the life of a Christian. So what that means is this. Pleasure for me, what I treasure, is not coming from reckless abandonment or excess or indulging in sex or food, but real pleasure is found in Christ. Real freedom, as we've said so many times, is not getting to do whatever you want to do. And I would just insert joy into that as well. Real joy and happiness is not getting to do whatever you want to do. Real joy and happiness and freedom is getting to do what you were made to do. You were made to worship your king. You weren't made to make a lot of money sit in all that until you can travel the world and do whatever you want. That's not what you were made to do. You were made to worship your king. Now, I want to speak to the young people in the room just for a second, youngerish types in this room, and I'm leaving, leaving that elastic because some 70-year-olds may consider themselves young, okay? But just for a second, youngerish people in the room, One of the things I want you to understand is Christianity is not the absence of activity. When I was growing up, I thought what it meant to be a Christian was I made this list of things that I don't do, and then I don't do them, and I celebrate what I didn't do. And I got a pat on the back for not doing things. And it's easy to walk away from a faith that makes Christianity what you're kept from. And what we're going to say is if you're walking away from Christianity because you think it's a list of what, you've kept, what you're kept from, you're not walking away from Christianity. You're walking away from a false religion that's something like Christianity. Christianity is not the absence of pleasure. It's the presence of the right kind of pleasure. Christianity is not the no fun place. It's, it's, the ab, it's the presence of, of worshiping God and recognizing that there's pleasure and there's fun in Christ. I, I think this is really important because it's especially easy in high school and in college to think, if I'm a Christian, all that means is that the, I've got these things that I can't do. And I just want to say to you, that is exactly the opposite of what Peter's saying here. He doesn't say, look at verse 2, you can live the rest of your time in the flesh no longer for human passions. 
He doesn't stop there. He says, replace living for human passions, what you want, with what? Living for the will of God. Christianity is about recognizing that your life has been replaced with a set of desires that are now not for yourself, but for Christ. So let me ask you this question. Where are you looking for real pleasure and joy in your life? Where are you looking for that? Are you looking for that from a person? Are you looking for that from a job? Are you looking for real pleasure and joy from some accomplishment that you think is going to make you really happy? Can I just tell you the truth from God's word? All of those will fail you. None of those can go beyond a short moment in time. The only place you will find real pleasure, real joy is Christ. That's it. So when we face suffering, one of the ways that we endure suffering is that we treasure Christ by trusting and growing in our trust that he is better. If you want to come to a place in your life where you can endure suffering and endure difficulty when things are taken from you and all you have is Christ, take the roots of your trust in your heart down deep into the idea that Jesus is actually better than any of those things I would ever give myself to. Thirdly and finally, the third thing we've got to do is look to the future with confidence. We've got to look confidently at a future Christ has won for us. Look at verses four through six and with this we're done. With respect to these things, he's just listed a bunch of uh, sinful activities that you can engage in. He says, with respect to this, those that do those things are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you, but they will give an account to him as ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Peter's not naive. He says, you're going to face difficulty and suffering. When you do, one of the ways you combat that is by remembering that Christ ultimately is the one who's going to finish this. He judges the living and the dead, but also, too, that the grace and the mercy and forgiveness he shows you extends beyond death. That's what verse 6 means. There were people apparently in the churches that Peter was writing to who had become Christians and then they died. And he wants them to know that the grace that Christ has shown them extends beyond the grave, beyond their life in the flesh, and that now they're still living in God's presence. One of the reasons you and I can live confidently in the midst of suffering is by looking with confidence to the future. I'd say it this way. Viewing the future rightly helps me make sense of the present. Viewing your future and what's coming in the future rightly at times in your life is going to be what helps you make sense of the moment-by-moment life that you're living. Imagine with me for a moment that a doctor comes to you and says, you have a horrible, horrible illness. It's going to kill you if we don't do something. The good news is that this illness, this disease that you have has a cure. In that moment, as soon as those words are out of his mouth, I'm going, okay, I've got my pen out. Where do I sign up? And he says, wait, wait, wait. I want you to know one more thing. Before you sign this paper, you need to know that the treatment that will cure you is painful, it's long, it's going to be tough. And in the moment, you're going, I, I don't care. Give me the pen. I'm signing it. And I sign it. He says, okay, we'll start the treatment next week three or four months into the treatment. It's a year-long process, three or four months in the treatment. You're spent emotionally, physically. You're ready to quit. You say, I'm done with these treatments. The side effects are setting in. I've got this. I've got that going on. I can't go any further. It's killing me. And someone looks at you and says, but Spencer, remember where this is going. Remember the cure on the other side of this treatment. What that person is doing to me when they look at me in the eye and they tell me to keep going is they're saying, remember your future as a way of making sense of your present. Remember the cure that's promised to you as a way of coping with the brokenness in this moment. 
This is what Jesus comes to us to say. He comes to us to say, you have a horrible illness in your heart and it's sin. And while this sickness, this disease will kill you, it will destroy you, I've provided a way out for you. I've died for you. I've, I've provided a cure for you. But before you sign on the dotted line in faith, you need to know that this cure will cost you. And this is a mistake that we've made in presenting the gospel because many times we presented a gospel that says, it's free, it's easy, you'll never have any problems. If you believe in Jesus, all of your dreams will come true. I want you to know something. That is not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus will heal you. He'll forgive you, but he calls you to a life of following him. And oftentimes, while that life is incredible and good, it is also hard. The cure that Christ calls you and I to is a sign up to a life of living in obedience to him. And many times, that is challenging and difficult. Many of you may have prayed to receive Christ or or become a Christian because you thought it would make your life easier, only to find that following Jesus in some ways has made it harder. And for pastors and speakers and others who've portrayed a gospel in that way, I apologize on behalf of all those people to you. But I want you to know the true gospel is there is a cure for your sickness, but it will cost. Because you don't get to live your life for yourself anymore you are now under the kingship and authority of Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I want you to know that's what Jesus offers you. He doesn't offer you ease and comfort and a life free from pain and a life getting whatever you want. He offers you forgiveness and grace and mercy, but he offers you a life of following him. And it's not easy, it's hard, but it's the only way you'll find real peace and joy in your life. The way you receive that, the way that you sign on the dotted line for that cure is by repenting of your sin and trusting Christ for salvation. For those of you that are believers, what we're going to do this morning to conclude our time of worship together is to remember the suffering that Christ went to, through to provide this cure for us. It's through this Lord's Supper that's in front of us today. If you're not a Christian and you're here today, we're we're glad that you're here, but we're going to ask you not to take this with us if you're not a Christian. And it's not because we don't love you. We do love you. But we believe this meal is just for people who know Christ because what we're doing, if you're a follower of Jesus, is we're together remembering what Christ has done for us. Can I just make one more suggestion to you, though, as we close and as we go into this? Please don't just use this as a time of remembering. Please also use this as a time to recommit yourself to Christ. Part of what this time is about is giving us an opportunity to recommit ourselves afresh to our Lord and Savior. My prayer is this morning that you've been challenged to view suffering rightly, that it's for our good and for God's glory, but that you've also been given some ways to live that out in your daily life. Would you pray with me, please, as we go into this time?